I want to finish our series on the doctrine of assurance. We've been a number of weeks talking about assurance. I've been using as a guide Don Whitney's book, How Can I Be Sure I'm a Christian? And this will be the last week I want to deal with this subject matter, uh, particularly, anyway. I'm going to part ways just a little bit with with Dr. Whitney's book. The last few chapters are great. They're kind of a rehash of what we've already discussed and uh, already dealt with. So I'm going to just close with what I call the personal addendum to the study on assurance. Uh, Personal addition at the end here. It's personal in the sense that um, these are some of the lessons the Lord himself has taught me that I had to learn as a young pastor, lessons that I've learned experientially in my own life. And I'm going to just share with you some of these thoughts tonight on the subject as it relates to assurance. I was reminded of the Apostle Paul when he said in Romans 15, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And so I'm going to speak just a little bit of some of the things that I think Christ has accomplished through me that I want to want to explain Assurance is so important. It's, it's such a nuanced subject, and you have to be careful how you handle it. There are people that have assurance that absolutely have no warrant for assurance. They shouldn't have any assurance, but they do. There's all kinds of false assurances in the world today. At the same time, it seems that believers who should have assurance often don't have assurance and struggle many times with that assurance. And I, one of the things I have tried to make clear as I go went through this series is I wanted to be clear who I was talking to. The first couple of times I addressed primarily those who really shouldn't have assurance. They're false professors. They need to be shaken. They need doubt in their life. They don't have doubt. But then the last few I've tried to show that I am talking now to believers, Christians, born-again child God, like the issue of doubt. How does a believer deal with doubt? I'm going to continue in that vein tonight because I'm going to address believers tonight. What I'm going to speak about tonight has only to do with believers. It has nothing to do with non-believers. It has nothing to do with people who are deceived and are false professions. I unapologetically am speaking only to believers this evening. And I want to address my comments likewise. I titled this message tonight, The Believer's One Great Need. It's kind of a pretty presumptuous title, isn't it? Because there's a lot of needs in this room. There's a bunch of needs in this room. Needs I don't even know about, some I do. But I've titled this message, The One Great Need of the Believer. You'll have to evaluate the accuracy of that title at the end, but I believe what I'm going to share with you is indeed the one great need of the believer. It's one word, actually. One simple little word that every believer desperately needs all the time. And that word is grace. 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 We desperately need grace. The unmerited, undeserved, favor, and kindness of God. We need that more than we need life, more than we need breath. To know that you have the 
favor of God. That He's accepted you. That He loves you unconditionally. That He has received you and will not hold your sin against you. That He has graced you. That is the one great need of the Christian life. And it is constant. We need grace. Every day. Our salvation, our security, our life is rooted in and grounded upon grace. For by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Romans 5. We stand in grace. Romans 6, verse 14. Sin will no longer have dominion over you. You are not under law, but you are under grace. I am compelled this evening to bring to the believers a message of grace. Unmitigated, unqualified, exorbitant grace to the believer this morning, this evening. If you're a believer here this evening, you need grace. It may be need for reviving grace, renewing grace, restoring grace, forgiving grace, sustaining grace. But you need grace. To suggest a person can be saved by grace and then lost by law or by works or kept by law or kept by works, it undermines the whole doctrine of salvation in the Bible. We are saved by grace. I mean, we have done nothing to deserve our salvation and we can do nothing to lose our salvation. In Christ, we have unqualified grace. Grace. Believing parents who face their parental failures, they need grace. Teens, believing teens who live with raging hormones and all kinds of seductions and temptations in the world and failures, they need grace. Grace. Spouses in difficult marriages living under the consequences of past sin need grace, grace, grace. Single men and women struggling with their singleness need grace, grace, grace. We as believers need grace. And I really believe that a congregation like Faith Community Church If there's ever a congregation that needs to hear a message of grace, it is this congregation. And I'm going to explain why why grace is such an important message for us, for this church, for this body of believers. Why it is so important that we focus upon grace. If you're going to talk about assurance and not talk about grace, you'll never have a complete understanding of the doctrine of assurance. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. I love the preaching through the book of Isaiah. I'm sometimes tempted to preach through it again because I didn't even come close to doing it justice. But I'm bringing you to Isaiah chapter 40 because Isaiah 40 is a huge turning point in the book of Isaiah. There is so much, so much difference between the first 39 chapters in Isaiah and the last 27 chapters of Isaiah that liberal scholars say they speak of Deutero-Isaiah, two Isaiahs, the second Isaiah. There's no way, they say, the same prophet wrote the two books. You have first Isaiah, 
chapters 1 through 39, 2 Isaiah, chapter 40 through chapter 66. It is that drastic in the content, in the subject matter. In the first 39 chapters of the prophet, it is a message of denouncing and judgment. It is a message of woe. It is a message of coming judgment. It is a message of God's displeasure. But in chapter 40, verse 1, something changes. It is a dramatic turning point in the book and in the attitude of God. It is a turning point. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Isaiah is telling the people the message God has just told them. God went to Isaiah and said, comfort, comfort my people. Duplication, those of you that understand rhetoric, it would be like comfort has an exclamation point. It means it's in all caps. Comfort my people. The message of comfort is grounded in the next 27 chapters where God addresses his people. And this message of comfort, of peace, of grace is reiterated again and again in the next 27 chapters. You know what somebody has noted? It's pretty amazing. I think it is coincidental because chapter and verses are not inspired. Somebody did that several hundred years ago. They broke up. But you know what's amazing? The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are symbolic of the Old Testament, which has 39 books. And chapter 40 through chapter 66, the next 27 chapters are symbolic of the New Covenant, the New Testament. Guess how many books are in the New Testament? 27. It is as if in Isaiah itself we have Old Testament, New Testament. Because in Isaiah chapter 40, it begins God's promise of a new covenant with his people. And in that covenant, he pronounces to his people comfort, peace, Grace. Chapter 40 begins this pronouncement of the blessings that are to be found in the new covenant promise. And you remember Sunday when I said when we preach a text, it needs to testify to Christ. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. This points to the blessings that will come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of his people and the inauguration of the new covenant blessings that we have been going through in Hebrews chapter 8. It is because of Jesus Christ that God can speak to his people, comfort, comfort, because speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And that is a prophetic announcement of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross where in Christ God removes all of our sin, and he's at peace with us. And the channel is open for God's unqualified grace and mercy to be poured out on his people because of Jesus Christ. To the one in Christ, to the one trusting Christ, God says, speak comfort to. Give them grace. Speak graciously to them. And he duplicates it. Comfort. Comfort my people, Isaiah. 
Bring comfort to them. When you read the letters of the New Testament, you see the apostles carrying out this explicit command through the prophet Isaiah. They are standing in the tradition of Isaiah. And as they address the church, it is amazing with the precision and clarity that they speak comfort, peace, grace to the people of God. And that's the last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to show you we are going to take a supersonic jet tour through the New Testament and I will prove to you how the, the, the New Testament authors frame the message of God to the church. They frame it all around grace. It is grace-based message. When the speaker, when the preacher speaks to God's people in Christ, his message to them, even if it's a hard message, it better be laced with and saturated in grace. Because that is God's design for his people. Comfort my people. This is pretty significant that the Lord has done this because he, in Isaiah 40, he is addressing a group of people that have been rebellious and sinful, and they're even living now under the consequences of their sin in exile. And it is to those people, those rebellious people who have been sinful, living with their consequences, God addresses. And he says, I want you in Christ and the promises of the new covenant. I want you to comfort them. I want you to speak peace to them. I want to speak grace to them. I want to tell you why this message of comfort and grace to believers is is not only important for believers, but why I am emphatic that it is a very important message that believers right here at Faith Community Church must grasp, that God speaks to you as a believer in a message soaked and saturated in grace. And I'm going to tell you why we as a church need it perhaps more than anybody else. Many of you here in this room, perhaps most of the people that come to Faith Community Church have come from churches that were a shell of a church. Meaning, there wasn't much soul. There wasn't much life, spiritual life. There was very little truth. Some of you have came out of churches that have been great error and and doctrinal heresy. But many, if not most of us, have come out of churches in which there was no truth. There was no life. There was no holiness. It it was... uh, It was very discouraging. And then you've come to Faith Community Church. You've been around a fellowship of believers and heard the word of God. And it's been a joy to you. In many, many churches, one of the biggest problems in that church is that the vast majority of its members are unregenerate. They're not born again. I have friends in the ministry who have deacon boards where most of the deacons on the pastor's board aren't even born again. They have no concept of spiritual things. They don't think it with faith. They don't have a desire for holiness. They're just members of this church and they're deacon. We live in a world that is full of false assurances and false professions of faith. And when you when God gets a hold of a person, when when a person is born again, when you come to a church where you hear the preaching and teaching of the truth, you get zealous for the truth. You get excited about the truth. You begin to experience life in the body and you you get excited. 
But what happens in a church like ours, in, in what we could call a reformed church, a church that God is doing a work and where we see so much error around us, so much false professions around us, what often happens in churches like ours is the preacher, the messages, they're always targeting the false professor. They're always going after the lazy. They're always going after the people who are, you're not really living the Christian life. You're not dedicated enough. You're not devoted enough. And what subtly happens in good, solid churches is we're not preaching grace to God's people. We're preaching law. And they're loaded up with guilt, loaded up with demand, despairing. I've seen it happen again and again and again. And I call these ministries Isaiah 39 ministries. They are preaching law like the prophets. They are preaching to God's people denouncement and judgment and doom and gloom. You need to do this. You need to do that. I'll tell you, new believers are often inclined to this, to this kind of preaching, the kind of preaching that really targets people, really targets that, because they are so excited about the truth. They've been in falsehood for so long. They've been dead so long. And they look around, they see so many dead people, and they yeah, get them, hit them, wake them up. We have to be careful about that. I'm going to read to you. One of the authors I've been reading, Graham Goldsworthy, he's an Aussie, an Australian. Everything he writes is worth gold. So Goldsworthy is a very good uh, name. But I hope that didn't hold true because my name's Junkie, so whatever I write is junk, right? Graham Goldsworthy, he has some phenomenal material out there. But he talks about this in Bible churches, this this phenomenon in good churches about preaching not messages rooted in grace but law and people like that we, we, we kind of like that we want to get beat up we want to get hammered and he, and he says this if a preacher really told them what a hopeless bunch they were and what they need to do about it or if he really laid down the law about how they needed to improve their spiritual lives and performance they would come away feeling really good Battered and bruised, but good. And then he asks, why do we like that kind of preaching? Well, I think we like it because we want other people to wake up. But we often don't want, you know, it's not usually applying it to ourselves. Oh, man, I hope my wife's here for that. I hope so-and-so, they need to hear that. Get them, Pastor. Goldsworthy says... The idea is if we can just all pull together and get serious, then we can get this church back on track. If we can just tarry longer, if we can just surrender more fully, if we can just be more devoted, then we'll really live the Christian life. Ultimately, Gramsworthy said, I suggest we love this kind of preaching because we are legalists at heart. Give me something to do. Tell us something to do. We need to do, do, do. And there's a danger when the Christian life is reduced to doing instead of being. 
is a huge danger. And there's a lot of expository preaching in good churches, well-meaning churches that take the Bible and it is nothing less than doom and judgment upon God's people. Now, there's, there's a place for reproach and rebuke. And when you're talking to unconverted people, there's a place for that. There's some guys out there today that I think are some of the finest prophets, prophetic voices that our, our land has seen for a long time. These are men who are a lot like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, that are, that are pronouncing God's law and judgment upon a sinful nation and even a sinful church. One of the guys I'm thinking of is Paul Washer. I have absolute respect for Paul Washer. If you haven't listened to a Paul Washer sermon, you need to get on Google or YouTube. Google it and listen to him. It's almost like you're going to be listening to a prophet of old. It is a piercing, penetrating message. And it is needed today. I know that. But let me tell you something. I love Paul Washer and I affirm his ministry. But Paul Washer would make a terrible pastor of a local body of believers. That's not his calling. But he would be a terrible pastor of a local body of believers because a body of believers cannot constantly hear doom, gloom, pronouncing of judgment, law, uh, examination, you, just always getting you. It leads to despair. It leads to legalism. It leads to law keeping. There is a place for self-examination. Listen to Goldsworthy, Goldsworthy again. True self-examination is a means of going back to the source of our salvation because it reminds us of the constant need of grace. And if we bring a message to God's people, even if it is harsh, if it is not rooted in grace, it's out of place. Grace. We need grace. Some of you say, well, Tim, I don't know how that works. That's reckless. You get up and speak to the church, and you're just going to preach grace. There's going to be people there. They're, they're deceived, and they're going to take comfort in that. They're going to abuse God's grace. That's irresponsible. And pastors feel that burden. Pastors that want to be faithful, they know that. And oftentimes pastors knowing that when they preach messages of grace, they oftentimes qualify. You can qualify a sermon so much that it doesn't mean anything. You just keep qual- now. If this is true, and this, you know what is so amazing to me when I listen to Jesus preaching, he didn't qualify. He just laid it out. And then you just had to work it out later. You just had to think through it. And there are pastors who qualify the message of grace so much it literally becomes meaningless. There is a need, and this is what I'm. This is my plea tonight. There is a need in the church, in good churches, churches like Faith Community Church and Reformed churches, to preach unfettered unqualified grace to God's people. There's a desperate need for that. So what do you do, Tim? I think that's reckless. I think that's irresponsible. 
There's going to be people that are going to benefit that's not for them. They're going to abuse this message of grace. How can you do that? Well, I would answer. When I sit down to dinner. And if some meat falls to the floor and the dogs get it. I'm not going to stop feeding the children. I'm still going to feed the children. That is my calling as a pastor. Is to minister comfort and grace to God's people. Now, there may be needs for rebukes. There may be need for reproaches, but it better be rooted and grounded in grace. Because the believer, the child of God that's been born from above, he gets beat up so bad by his own flesh. He gets beat up in this world. He's constantly being like Lot, oppressed living in this world. The Satan is after him and he and she needs grace. We can't be good enough Christians. There's a danger if the pastoral ministry is always concerning itself with the carnal, with the uncommitted, and always trying to challenge them. When I read Isaiah 40, God's concern is comfort for his people. Dogs may get some of that comfort, but it'll only be short lived. God's people need grace and they need it every day. I want to show you something amazing. I just have a few minutes. We are going to take a supersonic jet tour through the New Testament. And I am going to show you how when the apostles address the church, it is always framed in grace. You want to do an interesting study on your own? Take the word grace and trace it through the New Testament. Find it in John 1. It says Jesus full of grace and truth. Follow it through the book of Acts. That was very fascinating. Following grace through the books of Acts. Preaching grace to a people that were under law. We're going to start our jet tour, Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. We're just going to flip through here real quickly. I'd like for you to see this because it's quite amazing. Romans 1, verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a salutation, but it's so much more than a salutation. Grace to you, to all those that are in Rome. I'm not even going to cover the occurrences of grace throughout the book of Romans, but now turn to the end of the book of Romans, Romans 16. Romans 16. Just wrote down the wrong verse. It ends in grace, but I can't find it. I wrote down the wrong verse. 24. Which verse did you say? The grace. Yeah, verse 20. Thank you. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
grace to you. And when I leave you, grace be with you. First Corinthians, turn over to the next page. First Corinthians one, verse three. Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Galatians chapter one, verse three, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter six, verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Ephesians 1, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 6, verse 24, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Philippians chapter 1, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Colossians 1, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Colossians 4, verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1, grace to you. And peace. First Thessalonians five, verse twenty eight. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Second Thessalonians one, verse two. Second Thessalonians three, eighteen. First Timothy one, two. First Timothy six, verse twenty one. The pattern goes all through the New Testament. Every one of Paul's letters begin with grace. Focus on the gospel of grace, exhortations and end in grace. The message to the church is rooted and grounded and framed in grace, grace, grace. Titus 1, 4, 3, 15, Philemon, a small little letter, letter, verse 3 and then verse 25. Hebrews, one of the reasons why I know Hebrews isn't written by Paul He doesn't begin grace to you as Paul always did in all his letters. But think about that for just a second. I know I'm out of time. Paul writes these letters. Do you think it was just automatic or do you think it meant something when he wrote it? The first thing he pins, grace to you. And he lays upon the church the heart of God, the gospel, the glorious realities. And as he leaves that church, he says, grace be with you. Every time, every letter, 
The book of Hebrews doesn't start with grace, but it is in the middle of the book, Hebrews 4. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. And then you find in Hebrews 13, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. Do this, do that, do this. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by food. Heart strengthened by grace. That's what will strengthen God's people. It's not law and demand. It's grace. Yes, there is going to be unbelievers that are going to siphon off and steal grace that they don't deserve. But God's people need grace. And they must hear it. Again and again, the message of God is framed to them in grace. 1 Peter 1-2 closes in chapter 5, verse 12. 2 Peter 1-21 Chapter 3, and in the book of Revelation. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 4. John says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And how does our Bible close? Revelation 22. Verse 21. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Grace. The message to God's people is grace. Unmerited, undeserved. Grace. Kindness. Mercy. You can't even begin to understand the doctrine of assurance if you don't grasp grace. If we're not preaching grace to a believer, grace is so sweet. It's our life. We need it. There are times we're going to have messages of rebuke, but it must be grounded in grace. Yeah, there's going to be people that are they're going to siphon off of it. But we can't ever forget In Christ Jesus, we have a overflowing, overwhelming force of grace bestowed upon us every day. And God's concern for his people is that in that work of Christ, they receive comfort, grace. God saved us, not on the basis of our works. God saved us knowing exactly how wretched all of our works are. And we cannot be lost on the basis of works. We are saved on the basis of grace. That message must resonate every day in the heart of the believer, or you move away from the hope of the gospel. Grace. And God's shepherds must shepherd his people with a message of comfort and grace. I think that's a fitting end for this doctrine of assurance, because without grace, there can be no assurance. There is none. It's worthless. Father, I pray that we will grasp this concept. We are legalists at heart. Doing, 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 doing. 
we can't do it. We're so afraid we're going to abuse grace. Yes, we must be careful. Grace is never a means to sin. Grace is never a means to abuse. But for the child of God, grace is so sweet. It's life. It's newness. It's hope. And your children, those that you have blood-bought with Christ, those that you have redeemed, need grace. Transform our pulpit, our teaching ministry. Preserve us. Keep out those who desire to abuse grace, who are unregenerate of heart and only see it as a license to sin. That will happen. We'll deal with that. But we need grace. Sweet to our tongue. Sweet to our taste. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.